Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. What I'm going to be talking to you about today is work that's coming out of this new investigator award, which is looking at the place of the public in public health in Britain from 1948, so from the establishment of the NHS, up to 2010. Um, it's very much early stages at the moment. I'm only really just getting going on the research at, uh, at this point, so it's sort of preliminary thoughts rather than kind of definitive findings at this stage. So just to give you a little bit of uh, an idea about what the project's about, um, it's oriented around sort of four kind of research, key research questions. The first one is about the meaning of the public within public health. Um, and as I'll talk a little bit in more detail in, in a moment, that what we mean by the public uh, has changed over time and who are the public, how do we understand what the public is within public health. So it's kind of a, a big overarching question. The second question is about who spoke for the public in public health. How were the public able to, were they represented within public health and who was able to do this? And that's linked into who, what was the role of the public within public health. Because obviously over this time we start to see changes within what are the kind of key public health challenges. And lots of those are linked to behaviour, to individual kind of responsibility for health. So what was the role within public, within public health? Were the public expected to act? How are they supposed to behave within public health? And that links into the fourth question about how responsible for public health were the public supposed to be? Think of conditions like um, smoking and lung cancer. Obviously, your responsibility in terms of public health would be to give up smoking. So what were those kinds of relationships? How were they constructed and how did those change over time? And those four research questions are going to be interrogated by uh, four different research projects. The first one, which is the one that I'm going to be doing myself, is about the meaning of the public in health education and health promotion. So looking at the kinds of health education, health promo promotion messages that have been created by public health and trying to see how does that construct the public? How are the public being seen within these messages? The second project, uh, which will be starting in September, that will be a research fellow, will be looking at the health survey and the public opinion, public opinion and how that's constructed within public health surveys and trying to think a little bit about how the public were able to speak back to public health through the survey. The third project, which will be a PhD student, also starting in September, will look at chronic disease and focus particularly on heart disease as one of the kind of key chronic conditions uh, facing public health and think about what was the place of the public around that. And the fourth project, which is... Um, being led by Gareth Millwood, a research fellow, is looking at infectious disease and he's focusing on vaccination and the public and thinking about some of the kind of fraught relationships that surround vaccination and, and the public, which is obviously a very kind of hot topic right now with the, the measles outbreak uh, in the US. So those are the research questions and those are the, the projects. But running through all of these projects essentially is the question about, well, what is the public? Who or what are the public? And there's lots of theory on the nature of the public, the public sphere, public opinion, and so on. And I'm not going to go into lots of detail about that, but there's also some historical work which has looked at the meaning of the public in public health in the 19th century. And I don't want to go into this literature in any great detail here, but I think it's important to recognise that there was and is no such thing as the public. Like Raymond Williams' concept of the mass, there is no single entity that we can call the public. There are only ways of seeing it. 
The historian David Cantor has suggested that the public is a relational concept, one which has changed over time. So he argues that in the 1930s, the public was seen as a unified body, but this broke down over the course of up until about the 1960s, so that by this point, the public had fragmented into discrete groups to be marketed to. Now, this is something that I want to interrogate in my own project on the meaning of public, the public, health, public in health promotion and health education. This project will consider the changing conception of the public within attempts to educate the population and promote public health. So I want to look at the various actors involved at the national and local level. Um, so, for example, bodies like the, what was then the Health Education Council became the Health uh, Education Agency, then the Health Development Agency, then they got taken over by NICE. So looking at the kind of central government bodies that were responsible for health education. But I also want to explore some of the strategies used and the impacts that these might have had. And I think one of the, the best ways to do this really is to think about a particular case study or a particular theme. And uh, this is what I thought we, I would do today. Uh, and that's talk a little bit about the public health messages that surround food, diet and obesity. So what I thought we would do is take a, selection at, take a look at a selection of public health posters and films and explore the ways in which ideas about food, diet and obesity have been communicated to the British public. So we're going to look at some of these posters, uh, we're going to watch a couple of films and then have a bit of a discussion about some of the, the issues involved. But there are all sorts of issues though about using these kinds of sources, audiovisual sources, um, though I do think they're enormously rich resources. There are, as we can see when we look at them, some advantages and disadvantages of using them. I want to talk about some of the different devices employed in the posters and films, analyse what this tells us about public health and the public, but also see how these can point to other underlying issues about politics and society of the day. I want to think about some of the continuities and changes over time and why these might have occurred. Finally, I want to reflect on what this tells us about the changing relationship between the public and public health in the UK. So just to start with a bit of context then, now I'm sure I don't need to tell you that one of the key chronic diseases concerning public health today in high-income countries but increasingly in low- and middle-income countries too is obesity. The recognition of health consequences of excess weight though is nothing new. There's a long history of the connection between body weight, diet, exercise and ill health. In Britain and other high-income countries, concern about the health effects of excess weight began to increase in the 1930s and 1940s as the waistlines of the middle classes began to expand. More broadly, the rise of chronic disease and the fall of infectious disease as leading causes of mortality and morbidity in this period um, led, led public health to shift its focus. So instead of focusing on infectious disease uh, and, and um, the way in which the environment contributed to public health conditions, there's a shift to focusing on chronic conditions and thinking about behaviour as the key cause of public health problems. So the archetypal example here would be smoking and lung cancer, but you can see diet and obesity within this framework as well. So after the Second World War, we start to see the effects of some of the macro shifts that we're all familiar with. So decreasing levels of activity, the abundance of highly calorific food. By the late 1960s, the health consequences of excess weight are starting to attract attention of public health practitioners. Work by Isabel Fletcher um, here at the University of Edinburgh has looked at the construction of the Body Mass Index, BMI, from the 1970s onwards, and the increasing use of the BMI as a way of defining 
what was seen as potentially risky levels of excess weight. So we see the development of categories of overweight and obese and those being linked to specific BMI values. And once we've got those kinds of categories, of course, we can go out into the population and try and find, um, find examples of these. Now, there are no figures, or I haven't been able to find any figures for obesity uh, before the 1990s, which I think tells you something about the way in which that's, that's come to be a, a, considered to be a problem. Um, but certainly by then, there a significant portion of the population were overweight and increasingly obese as well. So there has been an increase of people, in the number of people being defined as overweight and obese. And there's a corresponding increase of interest in obesity and its health consequences. For example, obesity is one of the seven uh, priorities for Public Health England, and child healthy weight, food health and physical activity are all priorities for NHS Health Scotland. Now, this is all somewhat contested. Uh, the categories, for example, of what are overweight and obese have fluctuated over time, so that the, the um, number of people falling into those categories has increased because the categories have changed. Um, and the whole kind of notion that obesity is a public health problem is, is contested as well. Some people say that it's not actually that risky. What are the risks of being overweight? Is inactivity more dangerous? There was a study that came out a couple of weeks ago that suggested that actually inactivity is, is worse for health than um, excess weight. So there's a kind of, it's a contested problem, but it's very much a kind of contemporary public health issue. And there was a perceived need to take this message to the public and get them to act. But if we look at the public health messages being communicated around food, diet and weight from the 1950s onwards, we can dis detect three distinct strands. And not all of them are directly concerned with the problem of obesity. Some reveal new concerns, but others tap into longer-running public health activities. So the three areas I want to look at in a bit more detail are food hygiene, what to eat but also what not to eat, and finally body weight. So in the early 1960s, the primary concern around food and diet seems to have revolved not so much around obesity, but around food hygiene. As you can see from these uh, posters, which were part of a series produced by the Central Office of Information for the Ministry of Health, were designed to prevent food poisoning. And in many ways, this, of course, could be seen as a kind of traditional public health concern. It's about hygiene, it's about cleanliness, it's about the environment. It's about bacterial threats to uh, individual and public health. Now, this, of course, was very much still a valid, and is still a very much a valid concern. Um, in the 1960s, Remember that, well, in 1964-65, only 38% of homes had a refrigerator. So this is still kind of a very valid concern about how do you store food, how do you prepare food. Also in 1964, there was a very well-publicised outbreak of typhoid uh, in Aberdeen, which was traced to infected corned beef. So concerns about food and hygiene and cleanliness were very much a kind of a very valid um, and important concern at this point. The focus, though, was not just on cooking and the consumption of food, but on hand-washing and the cleaning of plates and utensils, too. And I think these, are, these posters are interesting because they illustrate the reach of public health. Um, so it's coming into the home, into your private space. It's telling you how to wash up, um, how to wash, rinse, drain your, your pots and pans, but also how to, that you should wash your hands. This is a very kind of intimate insertion of public health into, into the home and into your kind of daily life and into private spaces as well as public ones. Public health even followed people on holiday, as you can see from these posters made for the Scottish Home and Health Department in the mid-1960s. 
So again, the concern here is about food hygiene and cleanliness, although I've always wondered, where are they going to wash their hands, given that they're at the beach? <laughs> and as a, a Scottish colleague of mine pointed out, this is also the, 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 the one sunny Scottish summer day <laughs> in 1960, whenever this was taken. Um, but I think these posters are interesting, not just for the message that they're trying to communicate, but for some of the other things that they're telling us. They hint, I think, at some important broader social changes. So this is the time of the affluent society. People are able to take paid holiday. Um, but there's also interesting that it's the, the family being represented here. Are, they're a white nuclear family. You've got mum and dad, two kids, a boy and a girl. And this is, of course, at the time in which the kind of traditional nuclear family is starting to come under threat or to be perceived to be under threat by um, changing social kind of norms and, and modes. By the second half of the 1960s, we're starting to see, though, increasing concern not just about how food was prepared, but about what food people should or should not be eating. Now, again, dietary recommendations are nothing new. They date back at least as far as the 17th century, when the Navy attempted to work out the victualling allowance to ensure sailors were fit and healthy. In the First World War, of course, there was concern about uh, providing sufficient nutrients for, for men fighting uh, on the Western Front. And in the Second World War, of course, there was rationing, concern about access to basic food groups. And this concern continued into the post-war era. There was an emphasis, for instance, as we can see from this uh, wonderful poster with the elephant, on eating green leafy vegetables. Uh, and seeing, staying fit and healthy, as um, the Ministry of Food kind of campaigns from that period illustrate. But there were also specific welfare programmes, uh, like this one which provided orange juice for young children and other vulnerable groups, such as expectant mothers. There were similar campaigns around milk and around uh, food supplements like cod liver oil. Food messages were also part of more general recommendations from health. For health, as you can see from this wonderful poster uh, from the mid-1950s, so there's a concern about um, providing milk for children, but there's also this concern, about, again, about handling food and food hygiene, alongside more general kind of public health measures about keeping clean and taking exercise, getting fresh air, sleep and uh, comfortable clothing, which I think is always an interesting one. So food is part of this kind of more general healthy lifestyle message. But what to eat and why was also increasingly being separated out from, a, from this broader healthy living message, suggesting that perhaps food required special attention. So the focus here in these posters produced by the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food from the mid-1950s is about um, providing eating foods that will build your body. So uh, bodybuilding foods, calcium, protein, iron for blood, but also uh, fat, starch and sugar. Um, not necessarily the public health message that would be communicated today, um, but it was about sort of building a fit and healthy body. So I think uh, the orange poster, I think this is the footballer Jimmy Hill. Yes, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> so again, the, the, you know, this fat, starch and sugar is being actually attract, attached to a kind of healthy image, to a kind of strong, healthy footballer image. So these things are, are for building your body and for... for um, living a healthy, healthy lifestyle. So fat, starch and sugar actually have a positive role here, not, not a negative one. This was a message that continued at least until the 1960s. So um, this wonderful poster, What to Eat and Why. So you've got, again, kind of protein-rich foods for growth and renewal, vegetables for vitality, uh, more sort of starchy carbohydrate foods for activity and warmth. Um, and you're being encouraged to eat something from each group each day to keep you healthy, fit and gay. 
Um, interesting, this post is from 1965, and of course this is just at the time when the meaning of the word gay is starting to change, um, to, to not be connected to kind of like a healthy lifestyle, but to, connected to, to homosexuality. And I think this is interesting because it, it tells us something also about the way in which the language used in these posters changes over time and how that has to reflect the kind of um, the social mores and social values of the time. But if we jump forward a little bit to the 1980s, we start to see changing messages not just about what you should be eating, but about what you should not be eating. So messages here are starting to focus on the foods that were thought to be um, good for health, but also on what not to eat, and increasingly uh, the negative consequences of certain foods and the effect that this could have on health. So these posters, I think, provide an indication of the ways in which diets um, had changed. So... Look at the number of processed foods. Even in the, um, the, the, the dark blue posters, the one from the British Diabetic Association, you can see processed breakfast cereal, um, processed crackers, biscuits, crisps, and so on. And in the You Are What You Eat poster, you look at the abundance of fast food and, and crisps and other kinds of um, mass-produced types of food. So these, things, these uh, posters are telling us quite a lot about the diet that, uh, and, and how those have changed, really, by the 1980s. What's also interesting, though, is that these posters were produced by voluntary organisations, so um, the British Diabetic Association and the British Heart Foundation, which I think is also an illustration of the way in which public health was starting to change. Um, so public health by this point wasn't, if it ever was, a unified kind of collective government enterprise. You've got voluntary organisations playing an important role in trying to communicate health messages. But I think it's also significant that the posters are framed around uh, individual choice. So um, the British Diabetic Association poster, should you, shouldn't you, the choice is yours. So it's being directed at the individual and asking individuals to make healthy choices. And this is important, I think, because it's an indication of the way in which kind of neoliberal politics is starting to insert itself into public health. So it's about individual choice, about individual responsibility. The emphasis is about encouraging individuals to make healthy choices, not about kind of uh, what public health, what government should do, but appealing to individuals to make changes to their own lives. Individual responsibility for health was also at work in public health messages that centred much more on body weight. These posters, which were produced by the Health Education Council in the 1970s, for instance, encouraged the viewer to look after yourself. So that's the the tagline, which you can't see hugely well, but it's, this is the tagline of the, the campaign, is look after yourself. By eating less, uh, by taking um, more exercise, and by reducing your consumption of high-calorific foods. But again, these posters are interesting, not only for the wonderful 1970s period detail, um, but also for the way in which these public health messages are being communicated. Well, and actually, what is the public health message that's being communicated here? It's not terribly clear... Um, a bit less food and a bit more exercise will help you look better and feel, be feel fitter. Well, what's the kind of message? What's, what's the actual kind of condition that these posters are trying to address? It's really unclear. It, it, just saying take more exercise, but not why. why. Why would you do that? There's no sense of the consequences, the health risks of being overweight and what that might do to you. What these posters do tell us, though, is something about the tactics being employed by public health communicators at the time. Here it's quite clear that perceptions about attractiveness to the opposite sex or lack thereof are being employed in order to encourage people to lose weight. 
And there are all sorts of things going on here about body image, about uh, gender, about um, sexism and stigmatization that I want to pick up on um, a bit later on. But in terms of technique, stressing the negative consequences of being overweight was a trope that was used in other public health media too. So what I'd like to do now is to look at a couple of public health films and think about some of the ways in which those are representing um, the, the issues at hand. So the first of these is entitled A Cruel Kindness. It was made for the British Medical Association in 1968, and it focuses on obesity in children. A female GP narrates the story of three children who are overweight for their age. She stresses that their obesity is mostly due to what she calls overfeeding on the part of parents, what she brands a cruel kindness. Now, I'm going to show an excerpt from the middle of the film. It's about two and a half minutes long. The whole film's about 13 minutes. If you want to watch it in its entirety, you can find it on the Welcome um, website. I can send you the link afterwards. Um, but as you're watching it, a couple of things to, to watch out for. Who is being addressed, do you think? What's the intended audience? And who is being held to blame uh, for obesity? And those are some things I want to pick up on uh, in discussion. And so it goes on <laughs> for 13 minutes. <laughs> so there's lots, I think, oh, I've lost where we are. Lots of issues there to, to pick up on uh, in discussion. But I thought what we would do is, is move on and, and compare that to a more recent public health film. Um, this one is from the Change for Life campaign, uh, which uh, was released in 2009. This is an ongoing campaign, um, which is looking again at the problem of obesity. The film, though, was made by um, Ardman Commercials, the same people that made Wallace and Gromit, for the ad agency M&C Saatchi, who were commissioned by the Central Office of Information and the Department of Health to make a series of films for the Change for Life campaign. Change for Life aims to promote individual behavioural change, getting people to eat more healthily, drink less alcohol and be more active. Now, this is a short film, it's just over a minute and a half long, but I think it presents a really interesting contrast to the, uh, the cruel kindness. Okay, so uh, quite a contrast, I think you'll agree. So as we've seen, these posters and films, I think, are an enormously rich source. But what, if anything, can they tell us about the changing patterns of health communication and the relationship between the public and public health? On their own, these films can only tell, I think, part of the story. We would need to, and I will be, trying to look at a much wider range of public health posters and films and other media to draw more definitive conclusions. Even then, it's hard to interpret these without contextual information. We'd need to know the part that these posters and films played in a broader public health campaign. Were these combined with other media and other ways of attempting to reach the public? How many people saw these? How did they react? So taking the films as an example, it can be hard to access this kind of information. Even finding out when and where the films were shown can be difficult. So I know, for instance, that A Cruel Kindness was bought by local authorities for showing to the public. Um, it's mentioned, for example, in the Westminster Medical Officer of Health report from the mid-1960s. But there's no audience data. There's no sense of where the film was shown, how many people saw it, and certainly no sense, really, of their reactions. So getting at what the public made of these films is even more difficult. The notion, indeed, of even evaluating these kinds of public health campaigns, assessing their effectiveness, is a relatively recent one. So the British Medical Association may have capped data about uh, who they sent the film to and how many people saw it, um, but I'd need to go to the archive to find out, and I rather suspect they haven't got this information, although I would love it if they did. 
With the Change for Life campaign, we can get a bit more of an idea of uh, what people have made of it and how many people have seen it. Um, for example, the film, as you saw, is up on YouTube, so you can look at the number of hits. Uh, you can also read the comments, which make for very interesting reading. Um, but the film was also shown on TV. It was part of a TV campaign in 2009. And I wonder if where you see the film might make some difference as to how you react to it. Is it a different experience watching this kind of film on TV, to a cinema, to watching it on YouTube, to watching it on your, your phone? I mean, what, where is the location in which people see these films quite different? With A Cruel Kindness, if it was shown in a, um, a local authority facility, that's obviously a quite different experience uh, to how you might receive that message. Now, for the Change for Life campaign, evaluation data has been col um, collected. But from what I've seen, the data has tended to focus more on the reach of campaign. So the familiarity people have with the message, do they know what the logo is? Do they know what the uh, kind of key messages are? Rather than what people thought about the campaign or how they reacted. Indeed, what, if any, impact did these films have? There are all sorts of claims made for behaviour change, but I think these are somewhat tenuous. Um, for instance, a randomised controlled trial published in 2012 looked specifically at the Change for Life campaign. And it found that it had increased awareness. People were aware of the campaign. They did know about it. But it hadn't really resulted in any behaviour change. And this, I think, echoes some of the general literature on health promotion, which suggests that you can change the debate around an issue, but actually changing behaviour is much, much more complex. Nonetheless, I think these films can tell us important things about the changing nature of health promotion and point to deep, deeper issues surrounding the public and public health. The limited contextual information that we do have is important. For example, a cool kindness was made by the British Life Assurance Trust for the health education for the BMA. So it's about doctors communicating health dangers to the public, kind of a quite a traditional public health message. The Change for Life campaign in some ways seems to be similar. It's, it's run by the Department of Health. But if you unpick a little bit who's involved in Change for Life, and it's a range of charitable and commercial partners including food manufacturers and supermarkets. And this, I think, points to much bigger changes about the nature of public health and who's involved in public health and in communicating public health messages. It's not just about kind of government bodies. There's a whole range of different actors involved. And there also, of course, have been changes in who is the public. Take, for example, the presentation of the nuclear family in a cruel kindness. So you've got a mother, father and children. And the woman is sort of fulfilling many traditional gender roles. But this also, of course, appears to be under threat. So there was the allusion to Valerie coming from a broken home. In Change for Life, we seem to have a nuclear family. So we've got two adult figures and two children figures. But um, they are made of clay. So it's, it's actually very difficult, as someone said, to know what gender they're supposed to be, what ethnicity they're supposed to be. And I think this is quite deliberate. We're actually able to kind of literally mould these clay figures into kind of whatever or whoever we want them to be. And this seems to be an attempt to try to appeal to everyone and anyone, but by hiding or seeming to hide ethnicity, class, gender, I think they're actually kind of underlying, underlining its importance in many ways. Changes in public health and the public also point to changes in the relationship between these. For instance, the difference in tone between the films was really telling. I mean, I think we were all kind of laughing but also wincing at some of the tone and the message uh, in a cruel kindness. It's a very hectoring tone, telling people, mothers, as that's quite clearly the audience, what they've been doing wrong and how they need to go about changing their behaviour and that of their offspring. In contrast, Change for Life takes a, a more subtle, choice-based approach. 
In A Cruel Kindness, it's very clear where the voice of authority lies. It's with the doctor. Whereas in Change for Life, it's much more obscured. It, it's sort of communicating a message that we all kind of know we're all something we're all supposed to be doing, and yet we're not. And it's, it's, it's this sort of very vague, amorphous um, message. So to try and bring that together into to some sort of uh, conclusion then, I think what's interesting when you look at these different campaigns is that you can see some continuities and some changes. Continuities surround the fact that there's an ongoing use of posters and film in trying to communicate public health messages, which I think is a testament to their power, even in uh, sort of the age of, of social media, of, of all kinds of different digital technologies, the traditional poster, the traditional uh, public, well, somewhat more traditional public health film are still being used. So that, I think, talks about says something about their importance or the way that they're seen as being an important vehicle for communicating public health messages. All the posters and films also told us other things about the context in which they were made and the values that they're reflecting, and I think that's very interesting and something that I want to, to focus more on in my ongoing research. Thinking about the changes, there seemed to be a shift from focusing on food hygiene and what to eat towards what not to eat and a focus on weight and obesity. We also saw that there was an increasing importance surrounding choice and individual responsibility. There was perhaps also less victim blaming. So in the Change for Life campaign, people weren't being blamed for, the, for being obese. It was the environment that was responsible, which might um, lead to sort of less direct stigmatisation of, of people. But um, this sort of hard-hitting approach hasn't necessarily been dropped from public health campaigns. Um, for instance, you may have seen the recent anti-smoking campaign, which is again using kind of shock horror, stigmatising kind of techniques to try and get people to stop smoking. Indeed, this was a tactic that was considered for the Change for Life campaign. Um, the, this, this poster was a, an early iteration of the Change for Life campaign, which um, was much more hard-hitting and suggesting that uh, if you let your children kind of play video games, you were risking an early death. Um, this came in for a lot of criticism, particularly from the gaming industry. They were very unhappy about um, the idea that uh, children playing video games was an unhealthy thing to be doing. Um, but also the very fact that it, it was suggesting that, you know, using this image of a child in a very kind of hard-hitting way and suge suggesting that this was a, a bad thing to be, to be doing was seen as a kind of too negative a message, too hard-hitting. So I think this points to, though, to some of the challenges about using visual and audiovisual sources. We clearly can't view these in isolation. We need to understand the part that they played in larger campaigns and what, in turn, this tells us about the public, public health and the relationship between these. So I hope you found that interesting, and I'm very much open to any uh, comments, questions, suggestions. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk slash heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.